is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Returning to the podcast for episode 88 is Jungian analyst and author John Ryan Huell in Brookline, Massachusetts. This is Dr. Huell's fourth and final episode in this series on Jung in the 21st century. He holds a bachelor's degree in chemistry from the University of Detroit and a master's degree and PhD in religious studies from Temple University, where his dissertation was on Jung and Martin Heidegger, titled Imagination and Myth, a Heideggerian Interpretation of C.G. Jung. He then taught religion and culture at Northeastern University for three years, before training as a Jungian analyst at the original C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich, where he earned a diploma in analytical psychology. Dr. Huell has been practicing as a Jungian analyst in the Boston area since 1980. He served as president of the New England Society of Jungian Analysts and the C.G. Jung Institute Boston, and as convener of the American Council of Jungian Analysts. He also spent several years on the executive committee of the International Association for Analytical Psychology, the IAAP, based in Zurich. Currently, he is a lecturer at the C.G. Jung Institute in Kusnacht and is an active member in their alumni association. He is the author of eight books, The Love Cure, Therapy, Erotic, and Sexual, Perils of the Soul, Ancient Wisdom and the New Age, which is the subject of episode 83, The Ecstasies of St. Francis, The Way of Lady Poverty, the subject of episode 82, Divine Madness, Archetypes of Romantic Love, Jung in the 21st Century, Volume 1, Evolution and Archetype, the subject of episode 87, and Volume 2, Synchronicity and Science, the subject of this episode, and Tantra and Erotic Trance, Volume 1, Outer Work, and Volume 2, Inner Work. His essay, Jung Comes Back to Himself, Reflections on the Connections Between the Red Book and Gnosticism was published in Volume 4 of Jung's Red Book for Our Time, Searching for Soul Under Postmodern Conditions, edited by frequent Speaking of Jung guest Dr. Murray Stein and the late Dr. Thomas Arst. Dr. Huell's professional work has focused on the generally overlooked spiritual and emotional dimensions of everyday life. In this episode, the fourth in a series, we discuss the second volume of Jung in the 21st Century on Synchronicity and Science. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, June 2nd, 2021, through the magic of Skype. Welcome back, Dr. Huell. Glad to be back. So this is the fourth and final episode in our series together, and we are finally getting to your volume, Synchronicity and Science. Uh, it is volume two of Jung in the 21st Century, and this is a particular interest of mine and has been a focus, this topic has been a focus on this podcast, which is that of Jung's concept of synchronicity. And in this book, you give such a great history and background of how Jung developed this theory 
and how it began. So let's start at the beginning and talk about how Jung got to where he got toward the end of his life when he published his essay on synchronicity. So Jung began as a medical doctor. Do you think that that enabled him to realize that there's something else going on here with the psyche? Well, certainly the whole idea of synchronicity is not accepted by um, modern science. And uh, Jung was aware of that. And, you know, he had, a, he had some good friends among uh, physicists, particularly Wolfgang Pauli, who was one of the original founders of quantum mechanics. And um, so he, he had lots of time to discuss things with Wolfgang. And uh, in fact, um, there's a book of uh, the, their, their letters that they shared with one another. So if you wish to go into uh, more detail of what they were talking about, you can uh, find that uh, book. I think if you look up uh, Pauli and Jung in the library or bookstore, you'll come up with it very quickly. The name of the book is Adam and Archetype, and I will provide a link to the book in the show notes for this episode. Okay, so one of the first things was uh, the, the friend of mine, um, unfortunately now deceased, uh, um, his, his name is, um, oh, damn, I have a terrible time losing the proper names of people. That's okay. Uh, anyway, yeah, anyway, the point is that he, he wrote a book on synchronicity He's a, as a physicist, and he, he went very clear, this, this person whose name is escaping me now, but will probably come back to It's Victor Mansfield. Yes, Victor Mansfield, that's the person. And uh, he said, he warned his readers on his book on synchronicity, don't think that this is something that applies to the cosmos to the world at large. Uh, this is only applies only to psychological development. If you have um, uh, synchronistic experiences, they're about your process in um, individuation, the heart of what Jung's work is. Um, and uh, I would say this, if anybody who um, wants to go in that direction should have a look at Jung's uh, article on synchronicity, where he actually he draws one of his uh, organizing uh, structures. Um, what we you, you probably know it as uh, Cartesian coordinates, uh, a line, a vertical line, and a horizontal line crossing at the middle. And uh, and you, so Jung drew one of those, and he put on one and end of the thing uh, space. At the other end of that line, time. And then talking about the vertical line, uh, the one was uh, causality, and the opposite was synchronicity. And he, he, so it's clear that what he was trying to say is synchronicity is a cosmic issue, a, a cosmic phenomenon. And, well, Wolfgang Pauli's reaction to it was uh, to throw it into the wastebasket immediately because he said uh, no physicist would today separate space from time. And as you probably know, since the early decades of the 20th century, Einstein's uh, 
argument for uh, the cosmos is that uh, space-time is a single thing, and space-time is the structure of the cosmos. Um, the uh, the way we under it's the way we understand gravity, but it's also it's the way we understand what we pick up in our telescopes and so forth. The most important thing to know is the universe at bottom is space-time. And uh, so he was really asking Jung to come up with another diagram. Jung did, and I don't think either of them liked it. They didn't talk about it very much. Um, but I, they gave me an idea, and uh, I regret here that, that there's no visual dimension to this because uh, I'd like to draw that Cartesian coordinate on the blackboard behind me. You can imagine it there. And uh, the, for the horizontal line, you have a line that agrees with the Jung's idea of uh, of, of um, space and time uh, being involved. So the, everything that has to do with space and time would be on there. At one end would be big things like atoms and plant, planets. At the other end would be really th small things uh, that uh, you can only, uh, well, I'm talking. I'm talking about uh, only vaguely material things like um, uh, uh, space and um, magnetism and uh, electricity. So when we're talking about uh, magnetism, especially, what we know about that is that we in the West, um, you know, which primarily means Europe and the United States uh, coming later. Um, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that the one, the horizontal line gives us the universe we know now, the vertical line gives us a, one that agrees with quantum mechanics. All of the non, uh, Jung said that uh, um, synchronicity was an a-causal connecting principle. And that's possible that you can talk about uh, quantum mechanics is uh, always being dealing with those that principle of no causality, and uh, so for us, something has to be in, two things have to be in the same place at the same time. Think of two billiard balls, and uh, if there's a billiard ball sitting in the middle of the table, and we hit the cue ball in the direction of when they get together, right at that moment when they're in the same space, there's a click. And the one that was rolling at a certain speed slow loses its speed, loses its velocity, mm -hmm. and the other person, the other ball, takes up the fo the force and moves. So, in quantum mechanics, um, in ordinary physics, that's what you have. You have one thing hitting okay. the other and being in the same place at the same time. But in quantum mechanics, it's not necessary to be in the same place at the same time. Everything is united to everything else. And so Jung goes on to say, in, in a certain, or to imply, I would say, um, that our metaphysics is inadequate to the world we live in. It needs to have another dimension to it. It needs to be like Taoism where everything is related to everything else, because that's the way things are. And in a world in which everything's related to everything else, uh, it's not surprising if, for example, 
a man wakes up in the uh, the middle of the night, two in the morning, say, this is Jung in a hotel room far from Zurich. He wakes up and he knows he knows immediately that he's in a deep depression, but it's not his depression. It's the depression of one of his patients back in Zurich. And while he's sitting there wondering what to do about it, he feels what feels like a projectile going right through his the forehead and out the back of his head. It wasn't painful, but it was a, a feeling he had about that. He couldn't do anything about it. He went back to sleep. And in the morning when he got up and had to enter the, um, uh, the, the dining room for breakfast, there was a telegram for him. And it was a telegram announcing that his, his patient had uh, died of suicide on the, on the evening before that he shot himself with a pistol. So how could Jung know this hundreds of miles from Zurich? He can know it because... In a sense, we're all, well, in a deep, deep sense, we're all connected. Everything that happens affects everything else. And the doctrine of synchronicity is a doctrine that says it goes, it goes beyond what we know in our ordinary uh, world, which is all material and all causal. causal. Uh, in the it's more like what the, the fullness of the world is more like what we see in quantum mechanics. Jung didn't say it quite as explicitly as that, and I think the reason was he was trying not to offend anybody. Uh, he was trying not to be laughed off the stage uh, if he were to talk about uh, a reality which is non-causal and non-local. Non-local means that these things can happen far apart from one another and still be in contact with one another, like Jung and in his uh hotel room and the patient uh, wherever he was in Zurich. So that, what Jung was trying to do is he was trying to expand our notion of the world, of the cosmos, so that we could see that these things that happen uh, very abruptly are not merely chance occurrences. They are chance occurrences, but they're not merely. They're meaningful chance occurrences, and they're, it's, it's possible for people to have these experiences and as we know some people have a lot more than others and probably because they are for some reason or other uh, more attentive some part of their their unconscious psyche is more in tune with what's going on in the world at large I think we could say mm -hmm. Jung felt he needed to make it clear that this is part of our package as human beings that we have this ability to uh, be in touch with things that are that are not in the world of uh, modern science, but uh, bend the rules of modern science, you might say, and get and then they happen anyway, and they are particularly Im important usually. They're usually an emotional aspect to them that's very important, such as the man who committed suicide. He was. Uh, he was in a state of mind, uh, in a state of emotion, that he was looking for escape from. Anyway, that's that's the heart of what I was trying to do in Jung in the 21st Century, Volume 2, Synchronicity and Science. I was trying to show that uh, Jung's picking up on something that's real in science, and namely the whole idea of fields. Uh, you know, we in the West denied 
magnetism, even though we knew we had examples of magnetism all around us. but we ignored it because we didn't have a theory for it. We didn't, we did, couldn't explain it. And so we said it didn't exist. Some, the Chinese had already uh, figured out the, the, uh, the idea of, uh, of magnetism 600 years before it finally dawned on us to think about it differently. In other words, instead of thinking, how can these two things, uh, a, one of them being a magnetic rock. Uh, how can these things two act on one another when they're at a distance from one another? It's impossible. Things don't have a causal relationship unless they're touching in some way or other involving one another physically. Well, obviously that's not the case. And the Chinese noticed right away that uh, the, um, the phenomenon of magnetism uh, encompass, encompasses the earth. The earth itself is a magnet. And if so, if the, if the earth itself is a magnet, it must be some p- central principle that's really important. They went on, for example, to uh, invent the compass so that seafarers could find their way around the world. Uh, obviously, this was something that agrees with our science, but we couldn't accept it for hundreds of years because we had to say that it's impossible because we can't explain it. This is what happens all the time uh, in um, our sciences, always telling us that things that we see happening are not happening. And uh, and so what we need is a way of explaining that. And the whole idea of fields is we've, we discover there are magnetic fields, electromagnetic fields. There's a lot elect, electricity is involved in the thing, too. But the point is that uh, we there's n- there's nothing significantly more important in our physical lives anymore than electricity and magnetism, and uh, these are things that uh, the West denied for many years. And the uh, and Jung Jung would agree with that and say yes. And I'm trying to get to expand their minds so they realize that we have and we're relying on fields all the time and the quantum fields. Quantum mechanics always talks in terms of fields. Uh, particles are changing into uh, from being particles to being waves, and uh, and we don't know. And then they change into a different particle. I mean, there, there are things going on that we can't understand. And the best they can do is talk about the fact that there are that the quantum world is comprised of fields, each field of which is related to a. Um, a particle or a wave. Now, I hope I haven't gotten too deeply into the whole thing and confused you all by now, but uh, maybe it's time for me to stop and get a uh, question from Laura. Oh, that was wonderful. I I didn't want to interrupt you. uh, So I'm going to go back and add a couple notes to what you said. Uh, It's interesting that you knew Dr. Victor Mansfield, he wrote a book back in, was published in 1998. And I remember buying this book and bringing it into one of my analytic hours with my analyst. I was so excited about it. The book is titled Synchronicity, Science, and Soul Making, Understanding Jungian Synchronicity Through Physics, Buddhism, and Philosophy. And it is a delightful book. Uh, Dr. Mansfield was, uh, he was an astrophysicist at Colgate University, right? How did you know him? We met at a meeting. 
Well, his wife uh, is very active on social media. We follow each other on Twitter and we are Facebook friends. Her name is Elaine Mansfield. And Dr. Mansfield's book was really my first introduction to understanding Jung's concept of synchronicity. And I highly recommend it for kind of the, the basics. There are a lot of examples in there. And he does bring in Buddhism and physics and philosophy. Uh, and But I wanted to ask you about the diagrams that you were mentioning. They are in your book, and I do have an ebook version. And I was wondering if you would like me to add the diagrams that you're mentioning and trying to describe verbally without a visual. Sure, you go, go ahead and do that. If, if there's some way that you can include that in the uh... Uh, and what we're putting together today, that's fine. Words that were de- developed and to explain, you know, that he used in many of his explanations, uh, the philosopher uh, Descartes, Cartesian coordinates, they're called. And if you had any uh, even halfway advanced math in your uh, life, you will have encountered them uh, as a ways of uh, descri- describing the world. And that's, so that's what Jung was using. He was using something that he calls it a synchronistic diagram. Synchronicity is always displayed in its uh, four dimensions uh, by that a diagram like that. But he now he applied it to the cosmos and ought to say, this must be the way the cosmos is shaped. And um, um, well, Pauli took it away from him immediately and said, uh, that's not going to work with the physicists because for physicists, space and time are not are not the same are yeah they're not they're the same phenomenon they're not different from they're the same so my so i will find those diagrams in your book i will take a screen cap of them and create a jpeg and then i will link to the jpeg in the show notes for this episode my other question is how did jung learn quantum mechanics well i don't think he didn't learn it deeply but he he um uh, learned, he learned a lot about it by his meetings with and letters shared with Wolfgang Pauli. With Pauli, Pauli okay. Pauli one of the founders of quantum mechanics. Right. I was just and, wondering if he, if Jung had any other exposure to it, if, uh, but it was well, it really... Well, it's well known that, um, uh, that Pauli was a patient of Jung's. That was how they originally met, and then and Jung found a... Uh, uh, and uh, someone, uh, one of his followers, he uh, recommended to or Pauli to work with uh, this other analyst because he wanted to keep the relationship between himself and Pauli out of the picture. Right. With the idea that he he might learn something about quantum mechanics if he could keep uh, um, Pauli as an a, an associate, a, a, a scientific associate. And by the way, Pauli was also one of the founders of the C.G. Jung Institute in uh, in Zurich. Pauli passed away uh, well before Jung did. Yes, the I think the ETH, the the uh, uh, sort of the Swiss answer to MIT, uh, 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 they have all of his papers, as far as I know. The, the, and you can get permission to go in and study those to some with some limited uh, some limitations. As far as I know, you can uh, you can get permission from whoever needs to give you the permission, and then apply to the uh, ETH 
to Etaham, E-T-H, uh, which means um, the poly, um, whatever you call it, the poly... Polytechnic Institute? Yes. Yes. So I would like to talk about the psychoid field. You mentioned fields and something that's very uh, important to understanding Jung's concept of synchronicity is the psychoid field. Because as you say, synchronicity is made possible by a psychoid field. So would you tell us what that is? Well, first, yeah, psychoid. Um, Psychoid is a term that Jung introduced and he was very careful with it to say you can only use it as an adjective. And it's, it's a descriptive adjective um, whereby um, you can talk about things having a behaving like living beings. So in other words, behaving as though they had a psyche, but they're not really developed enough to call it a psyche in, in Jung's language. I'm not sure that this is really a help. Uh, it's a help to sort things out for Jung, but I don't know how much of a help it is for us to say that, for example, a bacterium or a um, um, one of those um, minuscule animals that you find swimming around in a pond if you have a microscope to look a little more closely. Uh, simple beings like that um, act really as though they have a kind of intentionality. That is to say, they want more food, and so they go in the direction of food, and they can sense the where it is in their environment, um, and they can uh, go after food, avoid enemies, and so forth. They're clearly the ability to choose what to do and assess what the universe, mean, what the settings in the universe mean to you right here and right now. That is acting a little bit like you have a psyche. It looks like you're sticking up for yourself, um, making sure you'll set, you survive. And uh, so, but it's very simple. It's nothing that that would uh, be as, uh, you know, uh, the uh, the um, the psyche of a dog would be much more um, effective. Uh, be able to do a lot more things than the the psyche of a, an amoeba. Um, and but Jung would say even a grant that a dog has a psyche. Uh, certainly, if if I think one of the most important things for Jung was, can the psyche represent to its its situation to itself, as we do, for example, in dreams? Well, we know dogs have dreams, so they must have psyches rather than uh, merely psychoid process. I hope I'm I'm just trying to get across that idea of uh, that a very simple. But psyche-like activity is found in every living being. In every living being. And and what about matter? Because in a synchronicity, matter could be involved. And they, I don't have Jung's essay open in front of me, uh, his essay on synchronicity. Uh, but at some point, he s- distinguishes psyche and matter as being the same? Am I saying that correctly? I think what he says is something along the lines that uh, um, we we claim, we try to keep matter as a completely separate thing that doesn't have, and it doesn't have any of the qualities that psyche has. 
And uh, what he's trying to say is we really ought to loosen that thing up, that idea up a little bit and realize really that everything is is both uh, psychoid and material. Mm-hmm. So at the at bottom, and a number of, one of his favorite philosophers is uh, um, Leibniz, who wrote a metaphysics in which the most the fun, fundamental particles in his uh, uh, metaphysics were what he called monads, single things, and monads had material qualities and also had psychic qualities in that they uh, could recognize uh, different changes in the environment around them. Uh, And uh, in other words, they're acting like these um, uh, items I was trying to describe before, these um, particles or waves in quantum mechanics are, are, they kind of interchange with one another. They, uh, the, for example, this is a, a vivid image you could you can have that the um, the world we're living in, actually the cosmos we're living in, is filled with virtual virtual particles. These are particles that are popping into and back out of existence mm-hmm. everywhere, constantly, all around us. Our the room is filled with quantum particles that are coming into existence and then fading away again immediately. Uh, it, quantum mechanics is everywhere, and uh, it is so different from, everything about it is so different from what we know from ordinary physics that most physicists are terrified of it. They can figure out how to use it in certain ways, but they don't want to go too far with it. One of the ways which uh, is clearly no longer going too far is the idea of what they call entanglement. Two, two particles that have been in, in, involved with one another somewhere in the universe, and then depart from one another and float away thousands of miles to the ends of the universe. During that whole time, they are changing identically, or actually uh, oppositely. The one is going from a positive to a negative uh, dimension in one realm and the other one is going in the other direction but they they make all these moves simultaneously even though there's no way given that this the speed of light is the fastest thing we know of um there's no way for them to communicate with one another and yet they are entangled and going through the same dance and wherever they are in the uh, in the cosmos so when you see something like that, you know that the what, what we call matter uh, has to be a little less, uh, um, a, a little bit less um, rigid, uh, and uh, and and without any uh, spiritual dimension to it at all. That's one of the reasons that Jung was interested in, in um, um, uh, alchemy. Is that the alchemists were working with symbols? If you read what they were, they were working with materials, which Jung said were as much physical as they were material, or I mean, as much psychic as they were material, as much spiritual as they were material, and that was what attracted him to it because he knew that we we are living in a world that's as much uh, spiritual as it is material, and we ought to really have a language for that. 
And I think that was one of the things he was trying to do by studying uh, alchemy. And you do mention Alfred North Whitehead a lot in this book. Uh, He talked about the physical pole and the mental pole. Where does Whitehead fit in with Jung? Oh, I'm not sure I know how how to understand the question. Okay. Um, Jung was very well informed about uh, Western philosophy, Mm -hmm. uh, and and Leibniz was an important figure in the uh, 17th century. And uh, and Jung, Jung, 17th century was Jung's favorite um, century, uh, in one sense, because that was the time where alchemy finally broke up and they went in two and uh the, it split in half and went in two directions in one direction they were interested only in the spiritual aspect of it and the other one uh, was interested in the material aspects of it and then those material aspects basically had to become kind of without any kind of theology you couldn't they wanted to be able to explain everything on its own terms and that meant that you couldn't bring God in any place along the way. And uh, Leibniz was uh, as sure that God was part of it from the very beginning. So I had asked you about Alfred North Whitehead, and then you were talking about Leibniz. I was talking about Leibniz here, yeah. Yeah, um, no, I had asked you about Alfred North Whitehead, because he is mentioned a lot in this book. Yes. And Right, so he had made an argument in 1929 in uh, his book process and reality an essay in cosmology and so i was asking you about jung being influenced by whitehead because whitehead was looking at uh the physical pole and the mental pole so i was still there on that right now you you're remembering that correctly um and uh but uh what you uh I didn't claim that Jung had learned from Heidegger. Actually, uh, Whitehead, Whitehead. Whitehead. Okay, Whitehead. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't claim that he had had learned from Whitehead. Okay. What I knew about him was I'd never. I I saw no references to Whitehead. Wrote his important book in uh, 1929, mm-hmm. and uh, Jung might have known about it, but he never mentions it. Uh, and then the, the Jung's letters began coming out, and and they came out in two volumes. Mm-hmm. When I wrote my dissertation on Jung and Heidegger, I hadn't and no, I hadn't learned of any conflict conflict between any contact between the two. But uh, in the second volume, which came out after I graduated, um, there was a letter exchanged uh, with a, uh, a philosophy student who asked who wanted to ask him some questions about Heidegger, and and Jung basically said that Heidegger was a crazy man. Uh, he didn't want to have anything to do with him. He's one of those guys who uh, talks in pre- pretentious language, but has nothing to say. So, yeah, so if I say that I think that uh, Jung and Whitehead have a great deal in common, and I do, I'm, I try to make that very clear yeah. in volume two of Jung in the 21st century. Um, but I, you can't say that... Uh, one of them learned from the other, though they were they were on different planets, I think you could say. And if they agreed with one another, it must have been by synchronicity. So we're talking about Alfred North Whitehead, or are you talking about Heidegger? 
Ah, I was talking about Heidegger there. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I was I was wondering uh, about the connection because what I'm trying to establish here is how Jung, who was born in 1875, who was studying, uh, attending seances and and trying to understand the psyche and how it worked. And he was a psychiatrist and he was working in a mental hospital and he was doing work with schizophrenia. How he went from that to where he wound up in the 50s and then he died in 61, uh, writing about synchronicity and being uh, involved with alchemy and taking into to account um the how the the universe is structured and noticing that the psyche is affects matter and vice versa so i'm trying to see how jung got there and what what his influences were and we established wolfgang pauli was one and i was wondering if he was influenced by whitehead no, he wasn't. I, I, I don't think he was. Okay. Uh, as far as I know, but the fact of the matter is, the way I, the way uh, Whitehead expresses his uh, insight into things mm-hmm. is very, very similar to the to the way Jung would express it. Mm-hmm. So I, um, they didn't influence one another, as far as I know, um, but they uh, they came up with a, a view of the cosmos and our place in it that is very much in agreement with one another. Yes. Yes. So getting back to the psychoid principle, you say that synchronicity is possible because the universe itself is governed by a psychoid principle. And that Mm -hmm. means the universe itself is something like an organism. It's organized that way, that the smaller parts influence the bigger parts, and the bigger parts have an influence on the smaller parts, and everything works together as a unit. Yep, that's basically what I'm saying. And uh, when Jung, uh, in the one chapter on synchronicity, uh, Jung talks about Oh, the, the fact that our we are unique in the West with the rigidity of our ideas about uh, how the universe is constructed. Right. And uh, he would propose instead, why don't you learn a little bit about Taoism uh, from the Chinese? Because for the, the Taoists realize that really at, at bottom, everything is related to everything else. Everything's in connection with everything else. Uh, or um, you might pick up the uh, the Quran, where uh, the uh, where God says um, we were unknown. He talks about himself or herself in the plural. We were unknown and wanted to be known, and so we created the world. Mm. And so the world and uh, God are sort of mirroring one another. And the the creators in uh, the created beings in creation are exp- express qualities of the divine and um, allow us to to think that we if and the, and the, certainly the uh, alchemists thought this way uh, if we if we find out how the world is structured 
we're actually finding out how God thinks because God created the world. Nature itself is as, as important a doctrine of, of uh, religious reality as the Bible is. God gave us two things. He gave us the Bible and he, and, uh, and he gave us nature. And by studying nature, we can come to understand the second book, you might say, that God wrote. Interesting. I, I've mentioned on this podcast before that I am in touch with several Tibetan Buddhist monks who I met here in the United States when they were on tour back in 2010 and 2011. I spent a lot of time traveling with them for a few years and they've been to my home. And now that they're back at the monastery in South India, Tibetans in exile in India, we keep in touch uh, via Skype and we do video calls and I help them with their English. And I was talking with one of them the other day, and he is a Geshe Larampa, which is the equivalent of a PhD. And I was asking him about God. And I said, you guys don't believe in a creator God, do you? And he said, no. Because somebody had asked me if I believed in God, and it got me thinking about, I wondered what, what do I believe? And so I, I very highly respect, um, the Tibetan Buddhist monks that I know, and I thought, well, they don't believe in God. So I asked him about it. And I said, if you don't believe in a creator God, where did we come from? And he said, nature, you know, just nature. We're nature. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's a fundamental uh, principle in Buddhism. What we've talked about so far about synchronicity is different from the other people I've talked to on this podcast about what synchronicity is. And everyone I ask s seems to describe it slightly differently. And I'd like to know where you stand on the connection between an inner experience and an outer experience occurring simultaneously, being a prere prerequisite for synchronicity, that it isn't two outer events that have meaning. They're not, one didn't cause the other, but they are connected through meaning. But they're not, it's not necessarily an inner experience and an outer experience. Um. Because let me just add this, sure, because but... the, the, uh, I just want to add this because I'm, I am a little exhausted talking about synchronicity and trying to get to the bottom of it, because I don't think there is a bottom. But from what I understood is that, and, and it's, I, I, I'm also kind of tired of the example of Jung being in his office with his client and Alice and patient, different terms, same thing. And she's not believing in the existence of the unconscious. And she had a dream about a golden scarab. And then they hear a knock, a tapping at the window. And Jung opens the window and there is a rose shaper, a, a scarab beetle, and, and hands it to her and says, there's your Scarab, right? Yep. Right. Okay. So she had 
an inner experience in the form of a dream. Yep. And she was struggling with the reality of the unconscious. So those are inner states. Those inner states were manifest, not manifested, but were manifest in the external physical world. So to me, that is what a synchronicity right. that's the, that's is. The road saver come, coming in as a, a, um, a being in nature, um, re- almost reacting as it was re- as though it were related to her dream. Yes, yes. So to me, that is different from um, what what I hear people when I hear people use the word synchronicity. They're talking about a coincidence in the outer world where there are two similar occurrences or events that happen that they are connecting them by saying that they have similar meaning. But it is not an inner state and an outer state. They're two outer states. Is that still synchronicity? And and, and if it is, to me, it to me it isn't because To me, synchronicity is when the outer world reflects the inner world, showing that they're not separate. And so if you just have two Mm -hmm. events in the outer world that happen coincidentally, you're getting really far away from what is really behind synchronicity, which is there is no difference between the inner world and the outer world. Hmm. Well, it seems to me that uh, the um, the roast chafer became part of her inner world when when it appeared. Um, I don't I don't know why we have. Uh, yeah, I know that Jung does say synchronicity, an inner world and an outer. But I think he gives about three or four different examples uh, in there. Uh, I think the. What people mean usually, uh, ordinarily, when they talk about synchronicity, mostly incorrectly, is um, that they see a connection between a couple of events, and uh, and since they don't know any reason, they they don't they don't know how it happens that these things came together. It seems to them as a, quite a surprise that that A and B should have both happened on the same day that their birthday happened or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, even to say to put a birthday into it makes it an inner experience, I think. Um, mm, okay. The point, I think what one of the things that uh, is the most important thing for me is in Jung's description of synchronicity is that if you... Uh, if you can find the cause behind it, it's not synchronicity. Okay. So it's it's is he really he really insists on that definition an a causal connecting principle, something lying outside the realm of cause and effect. Nevertheless, can be connected. And then he he doesn't know how quite to how to explain the reason for that. And I think he's uh, I think he was talking to Pauli because he was trying to get a, a handle on it. And I, I don't think he was entirely satisfied. Uh, and that's why he, he wrote the, the book, uh, the, um, the article on synchronicity as a way of putting his uh, perceptions out there. 
and inclinations. And the most important part may be the part where he's talking about the fact that our metaphysics is not very is not very rational, and it would be more sensible to have a something like the Tao, uh, or the Anima Mundi, or some of the other th- things that he comes up with, which are descriptions of the universe, which makes the universe a responsive thing, a kind of and a living thing, mm-hmm. and that's that's certainly um, central to Jung's description of synchronicity. Jung's essay on synchronicity is included in volume eight of his collected works, which is titled The Structure and Dynamics of the Psyche. In that volume, he defines synchronicity as consisting of two factors, and I'm just going to read them here. One is an unconscious image comes into consciousness either directly, i.e. literally, or indirectly, symbolized or suggested in the form of a dream, idea, or premonition. And two, an objective situation coincides with this content. So now he he was still working this out, would you say, at the end of his life? He, I think what you said is the most important thing I've heard is that our idea of the universe really needs to be looked at again and rethought. And a a note that I took when you were talking at the beginning is you said that we ignore, you were talking about magnetism and you said we ignored it because we didn't have a theory for it. And I can think of so many things going on today that are being ignored because we don't have a theory for it. Mm -hmm. And that's just the way it is today. But that doesn't mean that that is reality. I don't know what more to say. Uh, You you came up with a uh, a central uh, statement from Jung near the beginning of the the article on synchronicity. And and that's very true. Clearly there was an inner dimension to it and an outer dimension to it. And... um, Things that ha- are meaningfully connected. The meaningful part is is important. Yes. And that's where psyche enters. Mm-hmm. So if it, it's, a, it's a meaningful connection. But people, um, actually most people are much too uh, careless in designating the thing that comes along. I think, I think Jung would say if, you, if, it's a, if it's truly a synchronistic occurrence, um, it probably needs to have some... Uh, um, inspection. So we need to examine it and make sure that we can't find any cause. Uh, there is a Jungian analyst who wrote a book on synchronicity somewhat recently, about the same time my book came out, and uh, he talks about all the things that we know now, are which are ways, uh, unconscious ways we influence one another. Um, in in uh, Formerly, basically, he might he would, might have said, in the past, we attributed these things to synchronicity, and now we know how they're caused, and because we understand the way the neural neuronal system works in the body and how it and how it's related to consciousness. Basically, what he's done is he's um, given us a list of explanations for why these things were if. If the analyst or analyzand is reading the other's mind, it uh, 
now we know that it, uh, how we pick up these things from one another. It's not unknown, the connection. Mm-hmm. Well, what he's really doing, it seems to me, in that article of explaining synchronicity is he's explaining it all away. Because he's only talking about the things that he knows how to explain mm-hmm. with using physics principles. And he is in, he does have a PhD in uh, science, by the way. The boy who wrote the book. Are you talking about Joseph Cambrai? Yes. Okay. I'll provide a link to his book, uh, Synchronicity, in the show notes. And getting back to your book, as we start to wrap up here, we, I, did not do a great job of covering it uh, in this hour. So I highly encourage the listeners to pick up a copy. I'll provide links in the show notes uh, so you can purchase volume two of Jung in the 21st Century, Synchronicity and Science. It is in two parts. Part one is Shamanism and the Mastery of Altered States. It includes sections on uh, the nature of shamanism and ayahuasca in the Amazon, meditation. And part two is titled The Border Zones of Exact Science. Uh, You get into parapsychology, uh, seeing at a distance, psychokinesis, um, a crisis of metaphysics, uh, Darwin's dilemma, and you also talk about remote viewing. So this this is a very difficult topic to talk about. And you and I have, this is our fourth episode that we've done in kind of a short amount of time. So um, maybe we feel like we've covered, uh, we've covered things in, in some of the other episodes we've done together. Um, one of the things that, that I, I, I like that you said here is that the self, Jung's concept of the self, the self is a part of us that is partly psychic and partly psychoid. And then what about the, the, did we cover the detractors to Jung's concept and, or have they in general come around? I mean, Jung was, I think he was afraid to publish on synchronicity when he first used the term uh, much earlier (laughs) on. There's a page on the Speaking of Jung website. um, If you go to the menu that's across the top of each page, if you just click on Jung, I have there in the timeline, his first use of the term was, I think, in the 20s, and then he didn't publish on it um, till much later on. Yeah, I think his first uh, publications that mentioned it were in, uh, in the late 1940s. So he... I'm seeing here that his first explicit use of the term synchronicity was in 1929 which is wow, because he didn't meet Pauli until 1930. Hmm. And then he published. uh, So he must have been thinking about things quantum mechanical um, before he met, before he met. Yeah. It doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, it actually, it began with an Aranos lecture his his essay on synchronicity was an Aranos lecture in 1951. Yes, this was uh, this was after getting the uh, the article from uh, his Chinese friend 
uh, the Secret of the Golden Flower. That was which was a Taoistic uh, way of uh, seeking immortality. Is there anything you wanted to add about that? Well, it seems like if I were to go on, we it would there'd be no end. But uh, yeah, but that's uh, that's what he. He he. What what struck him most about the book, uh, about the ar- article, whatever it was, um, what struck him most about it was uh, are these things that I mentioned before: the fact that uh, uh, the the materials that the alchemists are working with are as much spiritual as they are material, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So that's what made him. Uh, know that when he received that book, which is in 1927, I believe, uh, within a year of that time, he realized that what he was really interested in was uh, alchemy. And then he began um, a a very serious uh, program of reading as much as he could get his hands on about uh, um, synchronicity. And he wrote them up. He wrote that stuff up for he was that was an example of what people were supposed to do that came to the Aranos meetings. They were to talk about their latest insights in their field of uh, specialty uh, uh, with the idea that th- these things may not be ready for publication yet. But uh, let's let's all get together and from our various um, educational standpoints and discuss them. That was the whole idea behind uh, um the Aranos conferences. And so Jung was doing exactly what was expected in 1933 when he, um, when he gave a, a long and a very enthusiastic description of, uh, of um, alchemy. Mm-hmm. And the book you're referencing is The Secret of the Golden Flower, which was originally published in 1929. And Ricard Wilhelm died the next year and Jung wrote a commentary on that book. It's long. It's like over 60 pages long. And um, it, is, uh, it is part of that book um, now. So is there anything else you'd like to cover? No, I think we, uh, I think we, uh, may, we went in many directions. Uh, <laughs> sometimes at the same time. <laughs> and uh, it's going to be, I hope I... I hope the people who find it and listen to it uh, get something out of it. We've tried to put as much into it as we could come up with, and uh, maybe um, a, a better order might have helped made it help more helpful for the people listening. Anyway, if you like, it, I'm not I'm not a very linear thinker. I I know I uh, jump around a lot. It's okay. I'm not criticizing you. I'm, but I would like to urge anybody who reads this and, and says and gets a, something out of it that's really worthwhile. Let Laura know. There is a contact page on speakingofyoung.com. That is my website. I created that website. I'm the only one that edits that website. Uh, so I'm the I'm the only one that gets those messages. So feel free to fill out the contact form on the website. Uh, you can also write to me. I'll just give you my email address. It is Laura at speakingofyoung.com. 
And if you message me on social media, I may or may not see it. So the safest thing to do is to send me an email. And if you would like to contact Dr. Huell, uh, you could send it to me and I would I will be happy to forward it to him. He also has a website. Is it jrhuel.net or .com? .net. jrhuel.net is, is the address. Okay. J-R-H-A-U-L-E dot net. And I will put that in the show notes as well. Uh, so as you can find uh, in on there, I have at least uh, one chapter from each of the books that I have published. Uh, they give you a, a sense for what the book contains, and but you have to go. I I didn't think it would be um, uh, appropriate to put the whole book in on the website because that would uh, that would mean that the the publishers who, went, who were so nice as to publish the book are not going to get their part their pay. Right. So right. right. But if you want to get a feel for for any of the if any of those things, you can find them described there and a lot of articles published in journals um, that are not have not been part of these books or these discussions are, can be found there too. Can be found on your website. Uh, you also yeah. have a guide to Jung's collected works uh, on yes. the website. So it is actually a, a great resource of information. Again, it's jrhaule.net. So I thank you for uh, putting up with me. Uh, it's been a very trying time um, for the world. And I have been in basically in lockdown since March of last year. And um, I'll be fully vaccinated in another week or so. And I intend to start traveling again. So I won't be doing these episodes once a week anymore. I will revert back to what I originally did, which was about one a month. Uh, I have to say I am quite, quite burnt out on um, the, the pace that I've been going at. And so I know that I'm not at my best. And I apologize to the audience. I'm actually even doing another squeezing in another episode this week. So uh, it, it's been it's been a lot. Uh, it's been a trying time. And hopefully now we can all start to um, get back out in the world in a new way. In a new way. Uh, whatever that means for you. So I thank you, Dr. Huell, for all of the time you've spent uh, recording with me um, to talk to our audience um, about your books. You have eight books and lots of articles. And I want to encourage everybody to visit the website speakingofyoung.com because in the show notes for each episode, I have links to lots of Lots of other things, uh, things that are mentioned in the episode, and hopefully it's become a valuable resource for everybody. Well, thank you for doing it, doing the work. Please visit the website Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungi and Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device, simply by saying Alexa. 
play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. Links to Amazon's new Echo devices can be found in the show notes. So with special thanks to the Taylor and Francis group, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. 